Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that we are here to worship you and here to praise you. And so we just bless your name, God. We take this time and we just, we want to sing to you, Jesus. Amen.
to teach you kind of a newer song in the church this morning. You know it, sing along. We'll start with the chorus. Now that 
that again. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the privilege that you've given us that new and living way so we can enter in to the Holy of Holies by the blood of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that as we gather in your name, as we come near you and draw near to you, Lord, you've given us the promise that you are with us, that you are in our midst. And so we welcome you, Lord. And as you are here, you've come to heal. You've come to set us free. You've come to bring salvation. You've come to deliver us from all the things in this life that would hold us down and hold us in bondage. And so, Lord, we welcome you to bring that deliverance to our lives. Lord, open up our hearts to see you as you truly are. Lord, we, we often come to you with sort of veiled, veiled vision, not really seeing the glory and the power and the authority that you are. But, Lord, open our eyes to you today. Open our understanding, our hearts, our minds, our will, our emotion to who you are today. Lord, give us that, that desire for more. We want more of you, Lord. We're not satisfied with just where we are, the status quo. Lord, we desire the power of your Holy Spirit working in us from glory to glory, transforming us into your image and uh, allowing us to walk in the victory that you have uh, provided for us. Lord, we want to abide in Christ. Lord, that's that secret place of the Most High that you refer to and Lord, that's where we want to be today. We bless you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, please. All right. So what I want to do this morning, I want to go ahead and, and welcome someone up to the podium this morning. He is, I guess you'd call him our guest speaker, although he's not a guest. He's, he's one of us. Uh, so Stacy and Tanya Harmon have been fellowshiping with, with us for, I'm going to guess, maybe five years, four years, four or five years, something like that. And so what we want to do today is I'm going to invite Stacy to come on up, and he's going to be sharing the word with us today. So let's give a warm welcome to Stacy Harmon, okay? All right. Thanks, 
Good morning, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm good to see you all. And um, I had lunch with Steve a couple of months ago and said I wanted to preach someday. And uh, he said, how about July 18th? And I said, okay, well, that's a, that's a real date. That's a, a, a time. I got to make some efforts to get this together. And I thought about, you know, how he usually tells a joke when he gets up here. And um, I thought, there's no way I could ever approach the quality of his jokes. So I'm not going to tell you a joke. Um, I would like you to turn to, with me, if you would, to two familiar passages um, uh, in your Bibles or on your devices. Uh, John 14, 6 is where we're going to start, and we're also going to talk about Matthew 18, or sorry, 28, 18 through 20. And um, John 14, 6 is a very familiar passage uh, to us. But there's really an outrageous claim made there by Jesus, if you think about it. This is where he's talking to his disciples. He's telling them that he's going to go away. Um, he's trying to encourage them that he's going to go prepare mansions for them. And, and they don't understand what he's talking about, where he's going. And he says, and they ask him, well, where is this way? What, what are you talking about, this way? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And that's before the cross, obviously, um, before they... Um, scatter, of course, after his crucifixion. And if you go to Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to deserve all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So that's after the cross, right? But those are really outrageous claims if you think about it. He's saying he's the way, and he's also saying that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. So I would like to drill down a little bit on this idea about the way and the followers of the way, which are, are disciples and what they look like. But first, let me ask you a question. I'll step over here so you get a good look at me. Do I look like an architect? And well, I'm, I'm glad... Well, that's like, a, you're like, what kind of question is that, right? That's a ridiculous question. What's an architect look like? It's kind of a running joke between Tanya and I. Um, she was describing uh, a woman's husband to me, and she said, well, he looks like an architect. <laughs> and I'm like, huh, I don't really know. I don't have a reference for that. I don't really know what that means. I'm not sure I could pick him out of a crowd if he looks like an architect. But what about a doctor? What's a doctor look like? I actually happen to be a doctor. I'm an ER doctor, but um, maybe gray hair, an old guy. Yeah, that's a doctor. But the point I'm making is you have a reference for that. You don't have a reference for an architect. You have a reference for a doctor, right? If I had a long white coat on, you might say, well, that's a doctor. Or, or you could say it's a butcher, I guess, or a scientist. <laughs> or, or maybe it's, maybe it's the someone at the cosmetic counter at Macy's, right, with a long white coat. But if I put a stethoscope around my neck, then you're like, okay, that's looking more like a doctor. Or if I had an ID badge on that said, you know, my name and I was affiliated with the hospital, then okay, that might be a doctor. And, and what about if I was the setting that I'm in? If I'm in scrubs, right, you come into the ER, I'm wearing scrubs, you're like, okay, that must be the doctor. Um, but you don't really ask me for my credentials, right? You don't say, let me see your diploma, let me see your uh, board certification, what about your license? Do you have a license? Do you have a framework that you understand what a doctor kind of looks like? And once you sort of figure that out, you're pretty comfortable that that's, that's the doctor. So much so 
that you would literally trust your life with me after meeting me like two minutes, within two minutes, right? If you come to the emergency department, I would have the authority, right? And I am the way. I have the authority to take to admit you to the hospital to decide what's going to be done with you. And I'm the way that you get to the hospital, get the medicines you need or get what you need, right? That's, and you've decided just based on a little bit of information that that's the authority and that's who I am as a doctor. And then you have to also deal with what your impressions of doctors are, right? You, you might think of Dr. Welby or Dr. McDreamy, right? But, um, <laughs> or, or you might think, oh, the, I love my doctor. He was great to my kids or he delivered my babies or, or she helped my mom when, when she was in really uh, bad straits when she was older. Or you might think, Doctors are arrogant and condescending, and I really hate doctors. In fact, I've walked into rooms, and that's the first thing someone says to me. I hate doctors. And I usually say, well, so do I. So let's, let's get busy. What, what, what can I do for you? So it, it doesn't, but, but literally, I have the authority, and I'm the way in the ER, right? So let's talk about spiritual things. Let's switch to spiritual things. So the question I have to you is, what's a Christian look like, or a disciple, or a Messiah, right? What's a Messiah look like? Clearly, it wasn't what Jesus looked like, right? Because they said, eh, that's Joseph's son, right? He can't be a Messiah. Or he's just a carpenter, right? How about nothing good can come from Nazareth, right? That was, that was their image of a Messiah, their idea of didn't match what they were seeing with, with Jesus. And then he goes on to do miracles, right? He healed on the, well, he healed on the Sabbath. He healed somebody on Saturday. That's against the law. He can't be the Messiah. Let's just forget about the miracle part of it, right? But it's not fitting my little mold about what he is. He, he did work on Saturday. He can't be the Messiah. Even though he did a miracle, I'm, I'm dismissing the miracle for my fixed idea about what a Messiah represents. He was teaching with authority. He had knowledge of the scriptures. He did miracles of healings. He healed epileptics, paralytics. He raised Lazarus from the dead, folks, right? And they still didn't buy it. They still, still didn't work. Had such a strong bias against what it, or what it should look like, and it just didn't match. They still crucified him, right? He didn't look like a Messiah. And they said, we want a sign. He said, well, you're going to get the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? Jonah was in the belly of the fish, whale, whatever you want to call it, for three days, right? Jesus is saying, the sign of Jonah is all you're going to get. I'm going to be in the grave for three days, and the resurrection is what you're going to get as a sign. So that's the ultimate credential, right? So he says, he, t he says that he is, has all authority, and he's the way. But what is his credentials? It's the resurrection, right? The resurrection card is the ultimate credential, correct? Now, he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father through me. All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. So it's the, it's, the, it's the way to enter heaven through him and the way to live on earth. The way to enter and the way to live. All authority is his because of his resurrection credential, right? So the way back to God is, is through Jesus, right? First, and it, so you have to ask yourself, well, 
what am I here for? What's the meaning of life? Why am I here? Where am I going? What's life mean? And then, are these credentials good enough for you? Good enough for you to follow the way? Are his credentials, and plenty of, plenty of weighed in on the subject about what life's about, right? If you ask Sigmund Freud, he'd say life's about pleasure. If you ask Carl Jung, he'd say it's about power. If you ask Viktor Frankl, who survived a concentration camp, he'd say it's about meaning. And you know what? Those are actually, it's funny, all these experts have come up with all these ideas about what life's all about, but those are actually biblical principles. And how do I know that? If you look in Genesis 1:27, God said to Adam and Eve, subdue the earth. Um, oh, thank you very much. See, I'm, I'm used to nurses pushing me around. Thank you. Looking out for me, actually. Appreciate it. So, they said to subdue and rule the earth and be fruitful and multiply, right? That's power and pleasure, right? Now, the meaning part is based on our relationship with God. They walked hand in hand with God in the garden, that was a meaning, that was meaning, that was the relationship they had. So if you think about it, yet you, you still can pursue power, pleasure, and meaning in your life, but the, but the power and the pleasure have to be with a clear conscience, right? You can't do things that are, that are going to violate your conscience. And you have to, have to realize what God's definitions of those things are. There's power in weakness, right? There's pleasure in service, right? And there's meaning in relationship with God, right? So that leads us back to this idea of the way, the way to enter heaven, the way to live, and the way back to God. Because remember, remember this, in Genesis 3.24, what did God do when he threw Adam and Eve out of the garden? He blocked the way. He put cherubim at the garden so they couldn't get back in. The way was blocked. Sin had separated them from God, kicked us out of the garden, the way was blocked. So that meaningful relationship with God is now gone. That, that idea that we, have a, we can walk with God is gone. So the way was blocked by sin. The way back is Jesus, and the way to live is through Jesus. This idea of the way is, what is, is how the early Christians or the disciples ran their lives. That, that was how they followed Jesus. In fact, if you looked in Acts 9, Paul, before he was converted, was basically a hitman for the Sanhedrin, right? He was going out, he got permission to go out, bring Christians shackled back to face charges, basically, for following the way. And he said, it says he persecuted those belonging to the way. So who are those following the way? They're, they're called disciples, right? And here's my mic drop. And it's, I can't drop this mic, but here's my mic. They weren't Christians. Here's what I mean. Wait a second. Um, that term wasn't even used yet. Jesus never heard the term Christian. The Christians in Acts 11:26, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. That's 30 years later. 30 years they were disciples following the way before they were ever called Christians. And some scholars even believe that that term might have been even been derogatory. Oh, that's those Christians, right? Right? 
So there were disciples following the way all that time, but they were first called Christians at Antioch. I had a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, call me a Christer one time. Are you one of those Christers? And I went, hmm, well, yes, I am, but I don't think I like the way you mean it, you know? I, 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 he called me a Christer, which is like maybe what they were calling them Christians, right? The point I'm making is that they were disciples along the way, and then they were labeled Christians at some point in time. And what I'm, what I'm getting at is that calling yourself a Christian means something to people just like a doctor or the Messiah, right? So if you're a Christian, you might know what that means, and you have an idea what that means. But somebody else might think, oh, you're a Catholic, or maybe you're a Jehovah's Witness, or you're a TV evangelist, or a Mormon, or a health and wealth gospel, or you're a boss at work who goes to church on Sundays and then acts inappropriate the whole week. That's a big umbrella to be under as Christian. And you just have, there's nothing wrong with calling yourself a Christian, don't get me wrong. But we just have to understand that what it means to us, what we think it means, and what, it, what someone else interprets that as meaning could be two very different things. So perhaps, sort of getting back to our roots and calling ourselves disciples, or at least thinking like that, might be helpful when we try to th figure out who we are and how we should live, as well as communicate to others and try to bring them to Christ, right? And discipleship is kind of a lifelong process, correct? It's not like, it's, it's something you do your whole life. It's kind of like, uh, like martial arts when you have a white belt and then you go progress to black belt and you just gradually make your way through all these different stages and things become, you become better and better uh, at this. But what's funny about martial arts is the people that are the most skilled are usually the most humble, right? You, you learn so much as you go along that you're actually more humble and more grounded and more rooted and, and a better person towards the end than you are in the beginning, right? And that's a whole other topic, discipleship. We could spend, you know, hours on that. But what I'd like to do is get back to this idea about the way and what a few characteristics of a disciple living out the way. So the first one is under, the, the disciples understand worship. And certainly worship involves what we're doing today, this corporate worship where we get together and we sing songs and we, we sing hymns and songs and spiritual songs and we're preaching and teaching and prayer and we take the Lord's Supper and we, you know, this corporate idea of worship is certainly um, part of what we do and who we are. But I, what I'd like to look at is Acts 2, 42 through 43. So this is after um, Peter has spoken on, in Pentecost and there's 3,000 people have been baptized um, and they, it says they were continually devoting themselves the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. The part I would like to emphasize is this idea of a sense of awe. I think we need to recapture that, right? I think that this idea that we worship is something we do instead of something that comes out of us is what we have to sort of undo as we think of ourselves as Christians, as disciples. This sense of awe is, is what motivated all that other stuff, all the other worship that came out of that. So 
it's easy. I mean, I get bogged down. It's easy to check boxes in your life, right? I, I prayed today. Um, I contributed to the. I went to church. Whatever it is, the box that you check, it's easy to do that. But, but I think we have to start changing our attitude about worship is something, is something about who we are and not what we do. And if you look in Romans 12, 1 through 12, it's, or sorry, 1 through 2, rather, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and perfect, or acceptable and perfect. So it's, do you realize that when you're walking around your day-to-day life and you're trying to be a nonconformist to the world and that you are presenting your body as a living and holy sacrifice, you're, that's an act of worship every day while you're walking around, what you're doing, when you're trying to um, control what your thoughts and your actions, and, and that's, that's because you, of who you're, you're a disciple, who you're following, the way you're, the path you're on. Matthew 12, 7 says, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. That's where Jesus condemned the Pharisees for being so hung up on the law that they forgot the meaning behind it, that it was, more, they were more concerned about religion and people, or religion and ritual than they were the people. He says in Matthew 5.23, if you were at the altar to present your offering and you realize your brother has something against you, go make that right first, then come back. So what are the, what's the two, the, the, the two commandments that are, sum up everything? Love God, love your neighbor. So if you have something that's not right with your neighbor and you come to the house of God, you gotta make that right first before you come to stand before God. He wants you to love him and love your neighbor. The relationship is more important than the ritual or the theology. The relationship with him, the relationship with his children, and the relationship with mankind in general. That's, that's what we do as disciples. James 1.27 says, this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So to be in the world but not of the world and to take care of other people and their needs, right? That's part of the way of a disciple. Next is disciples have integrity. And this is, if you, if you looked up that word in Webster, it would say adherence to a code and soundness. And if you look at Matthew 5, and we're not going to go on, but Matthew 5, 6, 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. And this is where Jesus is talking to them in the Beatitudes initially, telling them, you know, things are rough, but they're going to be better. But then he gets into Matthew um, 5. And, and it's, that's the part where you, you hear the, but I says, right? But I say. You've heard it said, you shouldn't commit murder. But I say, don't even be angry. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say, don't even lust. Right? You've heard it said, don't make false vows. But I say, make no vow at all. In other words, let your word be your word. An eye for an eye versus turn the other cheek. Love thy neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say, love your enemies. 
this is all the kind of integrity or the kind of person that we're striving to become. Now, it's impossible to do that without God and grace, and you, it's, it's always, you're always falling in and out of keeping that together, but the point is, we have integrity. It's wh- who we are in, out there in the real world. Working on your heart and, is what we're talking about. And then he talks about in Matthew 6, um, righteousness is between you and God. This is because he's, he's condemning the, the Pharisees for, for wanting to get all this attention, right? Wearing all these brightly colored outfits and, and calling attention to themselves. He says you should give in secret. If you Give your alms in secret. No fanfare. That's integrity, right? Pray in private, not to be seen. Don't pray with meaningless repetition, but with intimacy with God. Fast with a smile on your face. Store up treasure in heaven and live today without anxiety. That's all in that chapter. I've heard it said, if you consider the worst case scenario and then it happens, you've lived it twice. So that's the problem with anxiety. And the other thing I've found out in my own life is 90% of the things we worry about never happen anyway. So we've just wasted all this energy and angst on, on this emotion, this anxiety. And then he goes on into Matthew 7, uh, 1 through 5, and this is where disciples make judgments, but they're not judgmental. There's a subtle difference there, correct? I mean, you make a judgment every time you come up to a red light. You're making a judgment as to whether you're going to stop or not, whether it's a good idea or not, weighing everything and making a judgment. But in Matthew 7, 1 through 5, Jesus says, Do not judge, lest you be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your, in your eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Take the log out before the speck. He's not saying you don't make a judgment. He's saying work on yourself first. Get the log out first before you start looking other places. And he also say, he's also saying that you're not the standard. It's, you're not the standard. When you make a judgment based on righteous judgment, because he goes on to say, beware of false teachers, right? You'll judge them by their fruits. So wait a minute, that's confusing. Wait, you're telling me not to be judgmental, then you're telling me to judge them by their fruits? Well, it's not confusing if you think about it. It's, you, it's not your standard. You're judging by God's standard. And, and it's not you saying, hey, I, you know, you, you, you know, get that log out of your eye or speck out of your eye. It's not you. It's not your own standard. I like the way that uh, this, what is he, Dr. Phil, he'll say to somebody, how's that working out for you? That's a good way to approach somebody, right? When you take the log out of your eye and you see a speck, how's that working out for you? Maybe there's a better way versus, you know, you're an idiot, right? That's just not the way to do it. And um, disciples, the next point is disciples have bigger fish to fry. And what do I mean by that? I mean that, that they're not going to get bogged down in a lot of d- details and things to take them away from their mission. 
And, and so I want you to consider something. Consider this original crew that Jesus picked. In, it's in Matthew 10, 2 through 4, but the 12 originals, right? Think of these people in a room together. Peter and his brother Andrew. We don't know much about Andrew, right? Peter we know a lot about from later on, but he's a pretty, pretty impulsive guy. You got Matthew, who's a tax collector. Now, tax collectors were, were really viewed as horrible people. They're, they're Jews working for the Roman government, and they're skimming off the top and exploiting their own people. In other words, the Roman government says, hey, we want an 8% tax. And, they, and so they charge 10 and get their own cut, and then they're, they're, they're skimming off the top to, for their own benefit. So they were hated by their own people. And then you have Simon the Zealot in the same room. Now, the Zealots were Jews who advocated overthrowing the Roman government by military force. So Simon the Zealot and Matthew, who's wor- I mean, the tax collector working for the Roman government, he wants to kill that guy and throw, overthrow the government that he's talking about. So those are two people in the same room. Then you got Judas, who's a thief, right? We know how he turns out. You have Thomas, who's a skeptic. You have James and his brother John, the one Jesus loved. Now, I don't know where that sort of was figured out, the one that, and how that he was loved more, but I'm just wondering how that would, the other guys would feel about that, right? You got Philip, Bartholomew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus. And then what about later on? You have John, the, I mean, you think about other people, like John the Baptist. John the Baptist wore animal skins and was a wild man eating locusts and honey. And then you have Paul later on, who's a persecutor of the church, and then he converts and becomes an, uh, an apostle, basically. How does that work out with, those, with the people that are, I mean, I, I, don't get me wrong, but I think I would be a little bit like, hmm, I'm going to sit over here and that Paul guy can sit over there. And then what about just Gentiles in general? Ultimately, there's these, the Christianity started off with Jews, right? And then ultimately incorporated the whole Gentiles, which are dogs. They're viewed as dogs by the Jews. So they've got this whole group together now, right? But what happens is they put aside their differences to achieve a common goal. We live in a culture that thrives on just the opposite of that. That everybody's, that's on, it thrives on divisiveness and conflict and individualism and hate. Our culture is just the opposite of putting aside your differences to achieve a common goal. That's how Matthew, the tax collector, could be in the same room with Simon the Zealot, because they had bigger fish to fry. They were, they were trying to spread the gospel, right? Mark 9, 40, Jesus is telling his apostles, because they said, hey, we found some people over here that are doing some stuff in your name. Do you want us to make them stop? And he said, no, for he who is not against us is for us. That's a pretty soft call, right? If it's not against you, he's for you. There's at least some common ground there. I'm not saying we don't have standards or we should overlook sin to be inclusive. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that we need to have bigger fish to fry because some of the things we get upset about or we get under our skin or cause division are really not worth sacrificing the bigger picture, the bigger goal. We have to agree on the ones 
What I mean by that is in Ephesians 4, 4, it says, there is one body and one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father, God and Father. We have to agree on those ones. But after that, I think we can just get a little more flexible and not so rigid and, and, also, and be more committed to the ultimate goal versus our own little agendas, right? And, and besides, you have to have a relationship with somebody to influence them. You can't say, you know what? Until you X, Y, or Z, or until you this, this, or that, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. If you don't have a relationship with somebody, there's no way you're going to influence them. So we do have bigger fish to fry. My next one is, uh, is that we have the disciples stay in the game. And here's what I want you to think about. Think about Judas and Peter, right? So Judas betrayed Jesus for money. And Peter betrayed Jesus out of fear, right? Just vehemently. I, I didn't know the guy. Three times. Judas felt guilt and remorse. Peter felt guilt and remorse. So what's Judas's solution? He kills himself. Peter's solution? He repented, resolved to do better, came back, and then went on to be Peter, who's the rock, his confession was the rock that the church was built on. Two guys at the same juncture in life, right? So no matter what you face, you have to decide whether you're going to be a Peter or a Judas. What if Judas had repented? It, you know, it'd be a whole different story, but do you think the Lord would have welcomed him back like he did Peter? You have to say yes, right? His solution was to kill himself. And so many of us do that spiritually is we just get too discouraged and we just fall away or we just stop doing what we know we should be doing. And, and then versus Peter who said, you know what, I, I, I really did mess up and I feel bad, but I'm gonna get back in the game. So they stay in the game. Disciples stay in the game. Resolve to stay in the game. And they stay in the boat. And this is a, this is a scripture, um, Acts 27, 14 through 40, where this is where Paul is being transported to Rome on a ship. And he's shackled, basically, to a Roman guard who is, and some of you might already know this, but if, if you're a Roman guard transporting a prisoner, if the prisoner escapes, then you kill yourself. Right? You're, or... And you're basically your life for that life. So Paul is on a ship. He's got a Roman guard with him. They're, they're sailing to Rome, and there's like 200 people on the, on the boat, and they come into this storm. And this storm is like two weeks long storm. And the experts on the boat, the conventional wisdom is, wow, we've got to lighten the load. We've got to throw off our food. We've got to throw off the, eventually they throw off the tackle and the rigging of the boat. Eventually, they say, lower the lifeboats. We got to abandon ship. We got to get off this ship. That's, that's the experts. That's the conventional wisdom of the day. That's the seasoned sailors telling them what to do. And Paul says in verse 31, unless these men remain on the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. He had been, uh, 
God has spoken to him, said, no, I want everybody to stay on the ship, stay in the boat. What's the first thing people do, or you do, or I do, either emotionally or sometimes physically, when things in life aren't going so good? Well, you know, I really don't feel like going to church. Or, um, man, I'm a, I, I know th- those people there, they're better than me. I, I shouldn't go. Or people fall away. They jump ship, right? You leave the, stay in the boat. Don't jump ship. Because what happened is the, eventually this boat runs aground. They get off. Everybody survives. But it was completely against all their thinking process, all their wisdom, all their decisions to what you do when, a, when, a, when you're in a storm like this. You get rid of all this stuff, and this is, how, this is how we do it. So stay in the boat. Disciples stay in the game, and they stay in the boat. This is the boat right here. We're in the boat. We're all in the same boat, trying to work things through, go get through life together. Disciples bear each other's burdens, but you got to stay in the boat. It's so much easier for you or us to help each other if we're in the boat versus trying to get you out of the water. The next point I would like to make is that disciples believe in miracles, but they don't rely on them. Here's what I mean. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 to 9. This is Paul speaking. He's talking about his thorn in the flesh, which is some condition. We don't really know what it is, but it's some physical ailment. He says, concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul couldn't heal himself. Right? He could heal other people miraculously, but he couldn't heal himself. God said his grace is sufficient. And Paul goes on to say, I'm content with my weakness. If, so, Because God decides how, when, where, and why the Holy Spirit is distributed. Here's what God guarantees us. He guarantees us providence, but not miracles. Providence means that he's going to take care of us. He's going to make everything work out okay. He always will be with us. But if you're holding out for, or you require a miraculous event, or a sign, or a gift before you're faithful, then you're going to be disappointed and maybe even bitter. That might happen, but disciples believe in miracles, but they don't rely on them, right? Romans 8, 28 We've heard this, this scripture a, a lot. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. He doesn't say all things will be good, but if you're called to his purpose, he says all things will turn out for the good. Right? His providence is guaranteed. And finally, disciples are baptized. Remember, the, go back to Matthew 28. It says, by definition, that's what a disciple is. I don't want you to get hung up on this comma, because in the Greek, there's actually no commas. But some people say, well, no, you have to be a disciple before you're baptized. And other people say, no, you, you become a disciple when you're baptized. It doesn't really matter the doctrine of it, the theology of it. The point of it is it's what Jesus commanded. Disciples are baptized. It's like Nike. Just do it, Right? Just do it. Every believer in the book of Acts was baptized, and you can make a commitment. Steve was talking about reading a chapter day. Read the book of Acts. Uh, 
And some people were baptized more than once. Acts 2.38, 3,000 people were baptized because they realized that they had been part of the crew that had crucified Jesus, and now he was in heaven because that miracle of them hearing Peter preach in their own language, right? You had different people from different cultures and different languages there on Pentecost, and it's like if I was speaking to you and you only spoke Spanish, right now you'd hear Spanish, then you'd hear English or you'd hear French or whatever. That was like, wait a minute, we're hearing them in our own language, hearing him in our own language. How's that possible? And Peter says, well, he said that he was going to go away, and when he went away, he was going to send a helper, and the helper's here, so that means he's where he said he was, in heaven. The helper's here, he's in heaven, that's confirmed. And then they said, well, what should we do? And he said, repent and be baptized. Some were baptized more than once. If they were baptized into John, they got rebaptized. Some people had received the Holy Spirit, had not received the Holy Spirit, and then got baptized into Jesus and received the Holy Spirit. Others, Gentiles that were presumably left out of the whole program, had received the Holy Spirit, and the apostles go, well, well wait a minute, they had the Holy Spirit, so they must be included, then we shouldn't withhold baptism. So they got baptized as well. The Ethiopian eunuch in the chariot says, there's water, what hinders me from being baptized? And that's what I would ask you. If you haven't been baptized, what's hindering you? What hinders you from becoming a disciple? First Peter 3.21 says, and corresponding to that, meaning Noah's Ark, where the water saved people, Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. It's not, it's not a bath, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone to heaven, after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. There's that all authority again, right? He has all authority. He has to the, he's the way to become a, a disciple, a way to a clear conscience. Galatians 3.27, for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So what does a disciple look like? A disciple looks like you and me trying to live in this crazy world, clothed in Christ, holding on to the way, trying to stay in the game, staying in the boat, and then, so maybe you've never decided to follow Jesus. Maybe you've jumped out of the boat. Maybe you have a doubt. I would challenge you to go back to Matthew 28 and look at verse 17. This is right before, if, you're, if you have a Bible go, or your device, go ahead and open up to that verse. This is right before Jesus says, gives the Great Commission. It says, and when they saw him, and when they saw him means he's risen from the dead. They're, he's with them again. It says, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, which is appropriate, right? Wouldn't you do that if you just saw the risen Lord? But some were doubtful, is what it says. Some, there's only 11 of them, right? Some is more than one. So more than one of the 11 were doubtful. These are the guys that walked with him, saw his death, burial, and resurrection, and now see him alive. It says, 
Some were doubtful. So what I'm saying to you is doubt is normal. We all have doubt. There will always be there. You cannot have faith without doubt. Just like you can't have courage without fear. Courage is what you do when you overcome fear. Faith is what you do when you overcome doubt. So it's really okay to doubt and be insecure. The question is, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? Jesus says in that, chapter, in that, in that um, passage we started with, at the end of it, Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always. So do you believe that? Is he with you always? No matter what you face, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how much doubt you have, whether your faith is weak, whether you need courage. So the lesson is yours. I'd like you to just please make your needs known. We're here to, or I guess I should have invited the worship team back up, right? Come back. <laughs> um, sorry, rookie mistake. But I would like you to, to make your needs known. We're here to pray for you, study with you. You can be baptized. You can put on, be Christ, put on Christ. You can, you can become a disciple today. Let's stand and, and, and worship.
today, God. We thank you that we get to be in your house today, God. We thank you for the word, Lord Jesus, and I pray that as we leave this place today, Lord, that we would just take something away and that we would um, hold on to it this week, Lord God, and we would find ourselves in your word. And so we thank you and we praise you, and it's in your most precious name we pray. Amen. Have a wonderful day. If you need prayer, we have a prayer team up front, so feel free to make your way forward.